Last month, when I preached the first part of this chapter, we got to see repentance. We got to see what to do. If you remember, the first chapter is all about the judgment of God coming. And he had done it through the, through the army of locusts that had devoured everything and left nothing. Everything was gone. All hope was lost. And in chapter 2, we saw repentance. We saw what to do whenever all this happens. What are we to do? And it was turn to God, blow the trumpet, gather the people together so that we can call out, cry out to God so that he can heal us, so that he can take away the judgment and that he can heal our land. And I actually got into verse 18 and 19 a little bit last month, but I'm going to get into it a little bit more. So we're going to start in verse 18 today. And let me pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you, God, that you don't leave us in despair, that you have provided escape for us, that you have provided way to avoid the judgment, a way to rise above the sin, a way to rise above the curse, God, through your Son. I just praise you for that today, and I pray that as we look at this, that it would be helpful to us in, our, in how we live. It would be helpful to us in our relationship with you, in our relationship with others, and God, that, um, that it would be walked out in our lives. Um, and that we would honor you for that. And that we would give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll get to verse 18 and we'll see what repentance looks like um, in a sense. So Joel chapter 2 verse 18. This is after... Let me read, let me just read 15 through 17 real quick, quick. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the other elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room, let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar, let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So he's given, a, he's given a instructions on what to do. Gather together. Cry out to God. Go to Him for your help. And this is the result. What we see in verses 18 is what God does when His people repent. He will be zealous for his land and pity his people. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. He will have compassion on his people because of the judgment that they are under. Why? Because that is the purpose. That was the whole purpose of the judgment to begin with. He sent the army of locusts to cause the people to repent and cry out to God. And so that when they do, he shows them compassion. The purpose of his judgment is so that he can get to 
the compassion. The purpose of His judgment is to reconnect with His people, to cause them to repent, to cause them to cry out to Him so that He can once again show His mercy and His grace. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, there's a lot in here. So we're going to look at it for a little bit. The Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. And I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. So we see here, the Lord answered their prayers. It says, the Lord will answer. The Lord answered their prayers. We serve a God who hears and answers our prayers. No matter how loud or how soft, God hears His people. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12 says... Well, let me read verse 10 to 12. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Listen, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. His ears are open to their prayers. God hears our prayers. Isaiah 65:24 says, "It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear." We serve a God that hears and answers our prayers. That is an amazing thing when you think about it. The creator of everything, of all heaven and earth, is available to us. And it's not in vain repetition. I was reading a story about somebody woke up in the middle of the night, an unbeliever. And they woke up in the middle of the night with chest pains. Bad chest pains. Like, thought they were having a heart attack. And this person in in the writing of the story talked about they prayed and they prayed. And then they did chants. And they did this and that, and then they prayed again. And they did, and there was like four or five different things that they did. Basically, I'm thinking I'm dying, so I'm just going to start praying. But who were they praying to? They did not know. And whoever it was did not hear. Why? Because they did not know the Lord. But we are fortunate enough, we've been graced enough by Him to know Him, and He hears our prayers. So believe that. Believe that it's God's promise. It is. God's promise is to us that He will hear us. No matter what your feelings are telling you. Because we've all been through points in our life where you're feeling like God isn't hearing your prayers. You're feeling like it just it doesn't seem like it's getting past the ceiling. But the reality is He has promised us that He hears our prayers. Now, so the Lord will answer, and he'll say to his people, listen to what he does. He's going to send you grain, 
and new wine and oil. If you remember in, in verse, in chapter one, verse nine, the grain and drink offering had been cut off. We talked about how the plague was so bad. The judgment was so harsh that they weren't even able to fulfill the offerings that they were commanded to fulfill. They were no longer able to take the communion like what we would see it today. The, the, the bread offering and the wine offering was no longer there. It had been cut off. The plague was so bad, there was not enough grain to make bread for an offering. There were not enough grapes to make wine for an offering. And we even talked about how it would have been so devastating that it would have even ruined the crops for the next year because they would have had no seed to save for the next year. It was such a bad plague that when we look at it, it would look like this land is going to be desolate from now on. But God is the creator. He's the one who established the grain in the first place. He's the one that established the grapes in the first place. And now he's telling them, since you have repented, when you do these things, this is the answer. I'll send you grain and new wine and oil. The olive trees will replenish. The grain crops will come back. The grass will return. The vineyards will be reestablished. And you will have the things that you need. I will restore the offering that I have asked of you. And then the next line there, the next sentence, it says, and you will be satisfied by them. You will be satisfied by them. And I think this is a key line. It's not even a full sentence that we need to just look at. You will be satisfied by them. The Lord will satisfy their desires. Far more significant than God's blessing of providing grain, wine, and oil is His promise that you'll be satisfied with it. Because the reality is a person may have plenty to eat with access to all the pleasures of the world and yet not be satisfied. We've all seen that, right? The, 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 so we're looking at contentment here, right? So the, old Palmer Robertson said this. He said, being contented is a gift that comes from God only to those who have returned to him. There is no contentment outside of God. You may find people that appear to be content but they're not. There's always a yearning. There's always a need. There's always something missing. And you can look into the world, and it is an amazing thing that some of the most miserable people in this world are the rich and famous. You ever watch what the Hollywood actors go through? Do you think they go through all of that because they're happy and content? No. They get there, they meet their goal, they become famous, and what do they do? They turn to drugs, they turn to alcohol, they turn to all sorts of carousing type of lifestyle. Why? Because they got there and they were not fulfilled with the fame. 
the money didn't fulfill them. So they start looking for it somewhere else. And because of their sin nature, they look for it in all the wrong places. You guys familiar with Andrew Carnegie? Heard of Carnegie Hall? Andrew Carnegie was once, in one point, the, the richest man in the world. He had made a huge fortune in the steel industry. Early on in the steel industry, and I mean just made millions upon millions uh, of money at whatever cost. You know, he stepped on some heads to get there, I'm sure, to get to the top of the ladder and everything. And But he was the richest man in the world. And as he neared the end of his life, as he got into his 60s, he started trying to give it away. He actually established 2,500 libraries. There's many libraries. There's several in Oklahoma. You can go, and if you go back east, you find even more um, where he was establishing libraries so that people could be educated, so so that um, people could learn how to read and have information and all of that. And he actually, it was estimated that he gave away $350 million, which at the time was just unfathomable. And he was, but he was doing that at the end of his life, trying to fill the emptiness in his life. He was the richest man in the world, had everything he needed, had all the power he needed, and at the end, when it starts nearing the, the, as you start nearing death, as you start seeing that, well, I'm not going to be here much longer, what good is it? Because he didn't have contentment. That's why he started giving it away. And he died, and I can't remember the exact quote, but there was a lack of contentment even on his deathbed. And you ask yourself why. He gave away $350 million dollars. Established 2,500 libraries upon, with many other things that he did in philanthropy, but he died uncontent because he didn't know Jesus. Of course, that's an unbeliever. We would expect, as Christians, we would expect unbelievers to be uncontent, right? They're missing the whole purpose of life, which is to glorify God. They don't even know the Savior. So, of course, they're uncontent. But what about those who belong to Christ? Can we be discontent? The short answer is yes. I'm sure we've all experienced it. Matter of fact, this is a Christian virtue that may be one of the hardest to reach, apart from humility. It goes right there with it. Being content in what Christ has given us. Christian people will be discontent with many of the same things as unbelievers are. We shouldn't be, but we'll find ourselves discontent with what? Our job, our money, promotions that we didn't get, our house, our car, Etc. Right? Material things, worldly things. Are we discontent at times with those? Yes. Yes, we are. Now, and listen, I don't want to make it sound like pursuing better things is a sin. It's not. That's not necessarily what discontentment means. I think what discontentment would show is when you pursue those things and God doesn't grant them, what's your reaction? Are those things what's going to fulfill you in this life? If that's what you think is going to fulfill you, then 
you're mistaken and you're probably ill-content. You're probably not satisfied with what Christ has given you. That doesn't mean you can't work hard and try to better yourself in certain things. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying what is the satisfaction truly found in. You know, when you look at money, you look at the, the idolatry of money, and people want to seem to think that the rich are the ones that idolize money, and the poor don't, and it's really far from the truth. The idol of money can come whether you're rich or poor. Because I've seen too many people think it's the what-if lifestyle. I think Paul Tripp calls it the what-if lifestyle. Well, if Or if only. It's the if-only lifestyle. If only I had more money, then I would be okay. I would be content. I would be able to serve the Lord better if only I had more money. And the poor seem to idolize that even more than the rich do sometimes. Like money would solve all my problems. And that's not true. We know that's not true because look at the rich. Do they not have problems? Of course they do. So we will find ourselves in having, being unsatisfied in material things as well, but we know that's wrong. We can repent of that. But we'll also find ourselves discontent with other things as well. Different than the unbelievers, right? Things within the church. The music. Sunday school, the carpet, pews or chairs. We got both, so everybody's happy. That's why we do that. Not really. <laughs> We're very practical here. We had some chairs. We added some rows. But there's been fights. There's been church splits over pews and chairs. There's been church splits over whether you have a projector or hymnals. People are discontent with things within the church. People are discontent with their position in the church. They want a bigger title. They want a bigger role. Maybe the facilities. The list goes on and on. Maybe in ministry. Maybe outside the church. I'm discontent. I have these gifts and I feel like I should be able to use them. Well, if you're not, you really want to use these gifts. And there's just no open doors. Well, who opens the doors? Who's the one that opens and closes the door of ministry? Who's the one that opens and closes the, the, your role within the body of Christ, within a local congregation? Is it not ultimately the Lord? So when we're discontent, when we're unsatisfied with these things, what we're really saying is, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. And I've seen it. We've all been there when we're young. We think we should be doing certain things and God's just not doing it. He has a plan. He has a plan and he may be using it to sanctify you before he has a role for you in ministry. And he may be using it to sanctify you. The, the other things that you struggle with, it may be a sanctification process for you. The problems that you can see with everybody else may not be as much of their problems as it is yours. And that all comes with, with the repentance. And so he says, you will be satisfied by them. Contentment is extremely important. And so how are you? 
This is a time for you to examine yourself. How are you doing in this department? Are you perpetually dissatisfied with your lot in life? Are you one of those what-if Christians or if-only Christians? Are you constantly looking for greener pastures? Turn to me, turn with me to Philippians. And Paul has some instructions for us. He has some information for us that is really amazing. It's, it's very profound when it comes to the topic of being content. I'm going to start in verse four. He is going to, Paul is going to lay out our solution to discontentment. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. And then look at the next few verses here. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, That now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to, to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He lays out our solution to discontentment. First of all, he says to rejoice. He says again, I say rejoice. Why? Because we have much to rejoice in. You've been born again. You've been saved from despair. You've been brought out of the depths of hell. You've been molded out of the miry clay into something that God can use as a vessel of honor. You have reason to rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. And then he says prayer and supplication. You find yourself struggling with your contentment? Go to the Lord in prayer. And, And the peace of God will surpass all your understanding. And He'll guard your hearts. He'll guard your minds through Jesus. It's a big key. The peace surpasses all understanding. But right there at the end, through Christ Jesus. And verse 11 and 12 lays out that Paul has learned through Christ how to be content in all things. When he says full or hungry... Probably none of us in here had ever have ever experienced hunger like Paul's talking about here. He was hungry. He went through real trials, swimming in the deep all night. 
the, the, and he's saying he was content in all of that. Bound or free. There were times he was in prison. There was times he was under house arrest. There was times when he's taken lashings and beatings and stoned. All of those. And what he's saying, I'm content. He said, whatever state I'm in, I'm content. I've learned it. And it's through verse 13. Probably one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, but when you look at it in context, this is what he's talking about. It doesn't mean, it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It doesn't mean I can do anything. He's talking about all things in context, which means I can be content in all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's what he's saying. He's not saying you can... Be the best athlete or the best accountant or whatever it is out there. He's saying whatever lot God sends your way, you can be content with it and you can still worship Jesus and you can still give him praise. Why? Because he's the one who gives you strength. That's contentment. So, turn back over to Joel. We need to work... On our contentment. We need to be known as people who are satisfied in Christ. We need to be known as people who can go without for the sake of others. We need to be known as people who can go without for the sake of Christ. And we also need to be known as people who can graciously have things for the sake of Christ. That we can be blessed spiritually and even materially. Why? And what is a Christian to do? One who is satisfied in Christ when he receives blessings. What is he going to do with those? It's pretty obvious. He's going to put them out to others. Right? That's our call. And then at the end of that verse, he says, I will no longer make you a a reproach among the nations. He will remove the reproach from his people. And he'll do that for us as well. And, and think about that. Maybe you've been caught in a sin. Maybe your reputation has been tainted. Maybe it was partly because of gossip. Maybe the sin was blown out of proportion by other people. Or maybe it was really that bad. Or, or whatever it is. If that is you. Don't concentrate on the situation. So many people want to focus on, on what the problem is at hand. If you've been exposed, or maybe you haven't been exposed, but you have a particular sin in your life and you know it, don't focus on the problem. Concentrate on returning to Christ. Focus on Christ, and He will see to it that your reproach is removed. Because only He can. You don't have the control of the reproach on you. Only Christ does. And then, verse 20, he says, I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. We see that when repentance occurs, God will destroy the enemies. Of his people. That terrible army of locusts 
had been divided. You, you notice the front half goes to one sea, the back half goes to the other. He splits the army and casts them into the sea for what? For ultimate death. The chastisement of his people has now been turned to full judgment of their enemies. And make no mistake, that's coming to God's enemies. In this life at times, and certainly in the next. When we see, we, we talked about Afghanistan, and it is heart-wrenching to see what's going on over there, but God has a plan. And make no mistake, the ones over there doing the wicked deeds of killing Christians and killing the doctors and nurses that are over there, that were there just to help, and they're slaughtering people and raping women, and all of that wickedness will see justice. You can rest in that fact. And we can pray for quick justice. We can pray that the justice would come on them now. And we can also pray for repentance. Because of all, of all those wicked people over there doing those deeds, there's not one who's so bad that the grace of Christ can't reach. His grace is sufficient to save the most vile of sinners. And we can take fact in that too. So as we pray, let us pray for those things. But he will, he will destroy his enemies. And then look at verse 21. And I'm going to read down through 23. It says, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. So we see now... What our response, what the creation's response, if you were here for equipping hour, you heard that the, the whole creation groans. It's all been corrupted. The whole creation groans for the return of the Lord. It, it, it groans for a restoration of its original state. And we see here what the response will be of the creation. The first part we see, and he goes in exactly the same order when you go back to chapter 1, he goes in the exact same order of how it was desolated. First, with, with a, the, the inanimate earth. So, so when we look at this as a whole, how should we respond when the Lord blesses us? And I think everybody in here has experienced the Lord's blessings. We should know how we should respond to that. It's not that hard. We should be grateful. We should be thankful to the Lord that He has given us blessings. And listen, there's, a, there's an idea. There's, I've seen Christians that feel guilty when God blesses them. Do not feel guilty for that. It's Him that blesses. He can do it if He wants to. And you shouldn't feel guilty about it. Just be grateful. Be happy and enjoy it. Enjoy it. He loves you. And that's why the blessings come on you. So as we look at the, the restorations, we see it come to the inanimate earth. And then we see it come to the animals. And then finally, to the people. 
the, the children restored by the grace of God must rejoice in the covenant Lord, not merely in the material things that have been restored. Okay, that's the key. Going back to contentment, that is very important. The joy is not found in the blessing, but in the Lord who gives the blessing. If everything else was stripped away, if all of the things that God has blessed you with, like, like if you consider Job, if he took away everything, all the blessings, would you still love the Lord? And the answer should be a resounding yes for the Christian. So we always need to remember when the blessings come, be thankful. When the blessings come, rejoice. When the blessings come, give praise to God. But not just because of the blessings. The joy is not found in the blessing, but in the Lord who gives the blessing. Psalm 149, 2 says, Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the sons of Zion be glad in their king. In him. In him alone. Look at verse 24. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So once again, we see the, the threshing floors, the wheat, the bread, the, the grain harvest has returned. It says in, it said in verse, uh, in verse 22, it says the fig tree and the vine yield their strength. What that means is it's giving a full yield. This is a prosperous harvest. So not only did we just get some of the grain back, not only did things start to revitalize, no, it's been restored to probably better than it was before. Only God can do that. And now we're seeing that. We're seeing the threshing floors are full. The grain harvest has been great. The grape harvest has been great. The vats are overflowing with wine and oil. The olives are producing we're seeing things restored. It conjures up thoughts of Eden. It conjures up thoughts of the pictures of the promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. And as that, as we think about that, we think about that land flowing with milk and honey in the promised land. That was but a mere picture of a better land to come. This should conjure up thoughts of Eden. What it was like before the curse. What it was like before the fall. And so ultimately, this puts us in mind of the full restoration of God's people when He ultimately grants us a new heaven and a new earth. But even now, we can still experience these blessings on earth. Spiritually. Spiritually speaking, we exp- this is the very thing we experience when the Holy Spirit converts the soul. This overabundance of fruit, this overabundance of God's blessing comes upon us spiritually when you're converted. When you're born again, that's exactly what happens. And we're going to see it physically. We're going to see it materially. And look at it in, in verse 25. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. I will restore to you the years 
that the swarming locust has eaten. And I thought about this. No richer promise can be found in the Bible. Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. God reverses the whole process of devastation that were caused by the years of destruction. And how does that apply to us today? How great of an encouragement is that to us today? Because many of us can look back at wasted years of our lives when we didn't serve the Lord. Maybe in our youth we were rebellious and rambunctious and followed the ways of the world. I think there's probably many of us that would be able to say that as our testimony. And how long did it go? Were you in your 20s? 30s? 40s? Maybe it went longer. Maybe it was 50 or 60 years you lived in destruction. Have you shameful sin in your past that you hope people don't find out about? Maybe you've been through divorce. Maybe you've had a failed marriage. Maybe you didn't feel like you raised your children right. Maybe you were rebellious against your parents. Made bad decisions for education, for your job. Maybe you spent too much time in frivolous activities, wasting the precious time that God has given us. The list goes on and on about things that could have been in your past which were destructive. All of us have them, no matter the age. And praise God that He saved some before they have a big long list of things, right? You know... It is really a disservice to Christ when people say things like, well, I don't have this amazing testimony. Oh, but you do. You know, when somebody says, I was saved when I was 12 years old and I really never, I, I was raised in church and I was saved when I was 12 years old and I've been walking with the Lord ever since. I just don't have this amazing testimony. Can you imagine? That is an amazing testimony. That is the amazing testimony. You don't have the years of destruction weighing on your mind. So praise be to God if that's your testimony. That is amazing. But it doesn't take away from the testimony that was you were 60 years old and lived a life of hell and God called you. Because it all comes down to this. God restores the years the locust has eaten. That is incredible. God restores the years the locusts were eaten. So if you're 60 years old, 70 years old, and you just accepted Christ, He will restore those years. He will use your life as a glory to Him. And if you're 12 years old or 10 years old when you accept Christ, He will glorify that as well. Why? Because He's the one that does it. So stop. Living with regret. Make sure that you've shown true repentance. That you're not doing it anymore. And then stop living with regret. Regret is the sorrow of the world that works death. And has nothing to do with the godly repentance that leads to life 
and restoration. Let's rest in that. Now look at verse 26. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Again, there it is. And we look at that spiritually. We can be satisfied in Christ and Him alone. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. We see the reaction of the people. When this glorious restoration, first you feast and will be satisfied. The contentment will occur in Christ. You will enjoy everything about your renewed life in Christ. And whenever this has happened, because we've all done it, we've all fell astray and received God's chastisement, and He's brought us back, and when He does, it's almost like it's sweeter than it was before. Only Jesus can do that. And then second, you will praise the name of the Lord. Those who have been restored and have been forgiven much know where that restoration comes from. We should consistently and often give God praise for his mercy and restoration. And now look at verse 27. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. You will have an intimate knowledge. As believers, we have an intimate knowledge of the Lord and understand that He is always with us. It's a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's our constant companion, encourager, and mediator. That's where it happens. People want to say, I I would believe if I had proof that God exists. Well, you don't know for sure that God exists. Yeah, I do. How? I know Him. What do you mean you know Him? I know Him. Well, you can't. No, I can't prove I know Him. But I know Him. I know Him. And you can't prove I don't. There is no way. Why? Because He is there. And He's met me. He met me where I was in my despair. And He pulled me out of that despair. And He's changed my heart and He's changed my life. And you can't tell me He doesn't exist because I know Him. I know Him personally. It's not a belief. I don't believe in Him. I do, but it's because I know Him personally. He has chosen me. He has called me. He has pulled me in. As the orphan that I was and made me His own. And I know Him. It's a personal relationship. And then finally it says, You will never be ashamed again. It is repeated in both those final verses, verse 26, verse 27. My people shall never be put to shame. From now to eternity, you need not be ashamed again. Those sins that occurred, they've been paid for. Those sins that occurred, that that destructive life you lived, it has been restored. God restores the years taken by the locusts. Never again will you have to bear the shame of that life. Christ has restored it all. He's restored the years. He's restored the blessings. The relationship that was severed and impossible with the Holy God, He has restored. And as He said on the cross, it is finished. Let's pray. Father, it is an amazing thing 
how apart from you, how unworthy I am. And yet, you've restored that. And I thank you, God. I just want to praise you. I just want to thank you for what you've done in my life. I just want to thank you for what I see that you've done in in these other Christians' lives who are here with us today. God, and what you are still doing. And I pray, God, that we would be easily moldable. That we wouldn't be stiff-necked. That we wouldn't be tough clay, but that we would be pliable so that you could mold us to your purpose. That we would be seeking to glorify you, seeking to honor you, seeking to expand your kingdom and do your will as we go forward in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.